Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney, recording today here in Amiskwichiwa Skygun, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 territory, on the banks of the mighty Kasiskasawanasippi, or the North Saskatchewan River. Joining us today is Chris Parsons, the Provincial Coordinator with the Nova Scotia Health Coalition, and a fellow, also a former, former, fellow podcaster, a member of the Dog Island Gang. Uh, Chris, uh, welcome to the Progress Report. Thanks so much for having me, Duncan. And uh, yeah, I mean, no longer am a podcaster, but I was part of the uh, the very small uh, initial wave of Canadian political podcasts before uh, every podcast was actually just a YouTube channel. Um, that was so. Yeah, now I'm uh, chatting with you about uh, what's been my day job for the last six years. Yes, but I but like any good podcaster, it's very easy to get drawn back into it. You know. The, whatever the line is from the Godfather. Once I thought I was out, they pull me back in. Here you are. Again. Yes, it is. It is a curse. Um, but you know, uh, I'm just glad that uh, we purged the archives of that podcast, and people can't listen to it anymore. <laughs> yes. So if you do want to listen to Dog Island, go to no, never mind. Um, uh, I enjoyed it. It was a fun podcast. I. It's very hard for me to get you know, news from Nova Scotia here in Alberta and uh, from people who kind of like sounded like me and had similar politics to me. So I'm uh, obviously doing a podcast full time with like other people is fucking work and all good things must come to an end. But anyways, yeah. RIP Doug Island. But we're, yeah. I mean, we made, we're 50, not... we made $50. I made $50 off of it off the two year run of that <laughs> podcast. Uh, and uh, I'm glad you appreciate it. I will say like our goal was always uh, when we set out was to be like, oh, we want to explain Nova Scotia to other leftists. And we want to in, like, ex, like introduce and talk about Nova Scotian issues to Nova Scotians from a left perspective, which they might not have have otherwise gotten that perspective previously. And I think uh, I think we sort of accomplished both over those years. And uh, I'm glad we called it quits when we did. Uh, it's, you know, things have shelf lives, particularly when they're your, uh, your silly hobby with your, your friends. And uh, yeah. Yeah. And but we're not here to talk and reminisce about podcast past. We you are here to talk about a very specific thing, a specific thing that you actually know a shit ton about and have like done a lot of work on over the years. And like you said, it is this is your like day job. Uh, you know, you work at the at the Nova Scotia Health Coalition. I think the the analog here in Alberta would be um, Friends of Medicare, right? Yeah. Like... Yeah. So we're one of several provincial health coalitions. Uh, most of them are called like the Province X Coalition our health coalition, whereas uh, in Alberta, for historical reasons, uh, it's the Friends of Medicare. I and mean, I've worked closely with those uh, folks um, there. There's uh, now it's Chris G and Alyssa, um, but uh, previously it was my good friend Sandra and uh, Alyssa. So like, uh, I think the all three of those folks are incredible and Alberta is very fortunate to have them. And, uh, we do similar work. Yes, friend of the show, Sa- friend of the show, Sandra Azakar. She's been on a couple of times, and uh, yeah, she's fantastic. Um, but yes, yeah, so we're we're here today to talk about the struggle for you know pharmacare or you know medicine for all, and you know there's been some recent developments. You know we've we've seen Alberta's or sorry Canada's kind of two centrist parties come together in a, a supply agreement to kind of keep this minority liberal government afloat for the next four years. And one of the preconditions of this agreement was movement, I guess, on pharmacare. I wouldn't call it like a, a pharmacare plan or a pharmacare agreement. It seems still seems pretty tentative. Uh, but I think there are some both some positive steps and some just like 
I think there's a, just a huge information gap out there when it comes to like what the fuck pharmacare is and how it would actually work and the, the the infrastructure that's kind of already in place to get us there and the like the the literal like supervillains and bad guys that are trying to keep it down and that's you know why I wanted to have you on is to kind of give us the lay of the land so are, are you ready for you know this 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 chat yeah I'll do my best um you know, I think I'm breaking the podcaster's code by having like done research about this, um, particularly in this case, years of it. So it feels in some ways like a betrayal, but hopefully uh, we can chat in some depth, I think, about about what pharmacare is, what it's actually going to take to win it. And like one thing that I think is, uh, I think it's sometimes worth having the conversation, but like the political machinations of what this means for the NDP and the liberals. But I think that that's actually in some ways been like a real distraction and really dominated a lot of the conversation. And I, I would like to get down in some ways to brass tacks, both about like, what pharmacare might look like, but also I'm excited to talk about like the, the actual politics of this, of what it's going to take to struggle and win a better system. Yeah, like we're not, we can't just depend on these political fucking losers at the top of parties to actually give us free medicine. It is going to take struggle. I think that's important to kind of continually say. But what I'm curious about is like, what is on the table right now? Like, what is the system that we have? How close are we to actually getting medicine for all? And what was agreed to, uh, you know, between the liberals and the NDP just recently? Yeah, absolutely. I'll start with the first question. It's like sort of like, what does the system look like now? And the answer to that is, is that it is largely privatized and incredibly fractured. Um, so right now, if you need to access uh, prescription drugs for the vast majority of people, you either access it by paying fully out of pocket or you have a uh, health plan, which is uh, which you got either through, you know, your uh, your student union at your university or for most people, their employer or their uh, partner or parent's employer. Uh, and those are private plans. Um, and so uh, there's a private broker who sells your employer or your union or your student union on the plan. And then it's administered by a company like Green Shield or, or Blue Cross. And in addition to that, there's also each province has a patchwork system of different um, provincial healthcare plans, right? So in Quebec, there is something that sort of looks like Pharmacare. Um, it's limited. Um, it's expensive. It doesn't cover everything. It doesn't cover everyone, um, but it exists. But in most provinces, it ends up looking more like things like in Nova Scotia, we have like a senior's drug plan, right? So once you reach a certain age, you can have limited drug coverage if you don't have coverage through um, you know, current employer, uh, Pharmacare, something like that. Um, it looks like uh, plans for, for example, um, people who are government employees, uh, the military is a big one. Um, and it looks like specific plans that are targeted in some cases, uh, in some provinces to low income people. Um, and then there's also uh, coverage of drugs for, in some cases, particularly expensive pharmaceuticals uh, through what's often called special programming uh, provincially. And that would be things like cancer drugs or very expensive other ones. Um, and then importantly, and I think this is one of the things that is really confusing about the Canadian system, is that uh, you are covered if you receive medication in the hospital. So because uh, national Medicare in Canada, uh, universal health care, covers care in hospitals, if you need prescription drugs while you're in a hospital bed, um, they will give those to you. But then the second you're discharged, you're sort of on your own and have to rely on paying you out of pocket or paying or relying on a, a plan you might have either through employment or otherwise. And that's sort of the broad scope of it. Like there's a lot of de different details and there's a lot of like differences province to province. And really the fact there's so many different plans and so many differences province to province, so many different ways of accessing it is part of the problem that we actually want to solve. 
because this is a really expensive system, right? And I think that that's really the important things is what is on the table of a national pharmacare plan will save money. We're talking about going from about um, roughly $20 billion in spending per year um, in this sort of chaotic system um, where sort of the anarchy of the market increases administrative costs. It increases uh, the cost of individual drugs because we can't leverage bulk purchasing. We can't build a, a public system to buy these drugs. We often don't know province to province what drugs cost. Although that anarchy costs at least you know, $5 billion more per year than if we just built a national system to do it. And so what's on the table um, is in some ways unclear, right? So it's, it's fairly vague actually in terms of what is being proposed, but what we have in concrete terms in terms of this agreement uh, between the NDP and the Liberals is, um, is to introduce National Pharmacare in sort of like two steps that they've started, that they've proposed initially. One of them is uh, to pass a Canada Pharmacare Act by the end of 2023. And that's just an act that won't itself create Pharmacare. And I think we will talk about that a bit later. And then after that, tasking the National Drug Agency to develop a national formulary of essential medicines and a bulk purchasing plan by the end of this agreement, and that this agreement between them is supposed to run until 2025. So those are the very first steps. So we're talking about the first steps by 2025. And what we believe, um, and what every indication has been, is the general plan of what we're going to get for Pharmacare is going to be based off of um, a report that was uh, authored by a committee that was chaired by former Ontario Health Minister Eric Hoskins, which was released in um, 2019, uh, which uh, essentially calls for, in a lot of ways, not the perfect universal pharmacare plan, but a universal pharmacare plan that is robust and does most of the things that we want. And that would be a single plan that covers all Canadians. So it's not importantly a fill in the gaps plan, which is what some people, particularly insurance agency industry has advocated for. A fill in the gaps plan would be cover only people who don't have existing coverage, which means you're only gonna cover the most expensive people and a fairly small number of people. We're talking, the Hoskins plan calls for like a plan that covers all Canadians that is parallel and akin to universal healthcare, um, and that allows the uh, federal government and the provinces to do things like negotiate bulk purchasing, to streamline administration, to have a single formulary, uh, which is the list of drugs that are covered, um, to do all of those things, and probably uh, would end up being uh, jointly funded by the provinces and the provincial government, but actually administrated on, a, on the ground level by uh, the provinces through sort of existing um, healthcare administrative infrastructure. So. All that is to say, like what is on the table is in broad scopes, universal pharmacare, but it's no guarantee we get that. And I actually think that an important part of the discussion that I think is being missed is that the actual details of what this is gonna look like are not set in stone, right? We could end up with a system that actually ends up looking a fair bit like a subsidy to uh, the insurance and the pharmaceutical industries and which only offers sort of minimal care to a small number of Canadians. Or we could end up with a program that allows us to actually like build a really truly like public system um, that could start incorporating things like public ownership of the production of generics and that sort of thing. Um, and I think that that's sort of the battle going forward is like, what are we going to get? Well, we don't know yet. That's uh, what the politics are, right? That's what the like us doing work is, is to figure out what it is we're going to get. So you're so you're sitting here and telling me that that an actual national pharmacare plan would save twenty billion dollars a year. But really, all I hear when you say that is that Johnson Johnson, Pfizer, Novartis, Merck, GlaxoSmithKline, you're telling me they're going to make twenty billion dollars less. Sorry, it would save. Uh, just to be clear, it, it would save five billion as the low estimate. Yeah, I don't yeah. care about the number. Yeah, but so, I'm just I mean, saying, like, when you talk about saving money, what you're talking about is like 
pharmaceutical companies profiting less so off of selling us medicine. Right? Most in a lot of ways, yes, mostly. It's also saving money off the administrative costs, right? Like mm, okay, I think okay. that one thing that like people who are really in favor of the free market forget is like it is an immensely inefficient way to administer something like it's an inefficient way to administer human life. Like, let's just throw that out there and be honest about that, like from the get go. But particularly when you're dealing with like a social program like this, where it's like, why do we have, um, you know, a, really a half dozen large actual insurance providers and dozens and dozens of different insurance brokers who are the middleman between your employer who's purchasing the plan on your behalf. And then we have literally in this country, thousands of different individual healthcare plans that cover different things that have different people administering them who then have to talk to these brokers who then talk to these uh, actual providers who are then talking to an underwriter who's actually sort of like insuring the whole thing, right? Mm. We have all of this- Layers and layers on layers of just like people pushing around paper. Yes. And just, every... just, just so you can get medicine to like literally save your life or dramatically improve. Yes. So like there's these administrative costs and every one of those has, you know, executives and middle managers and almost, and every one of those companies has shareholders who have to get their dividends out of it and who have gotten- very good dividends over the years. Um, and so like you've got all of that. And then you've also got the pharmacare industry who make an, or the, sorry, rather the pharmaceutical industry who make an incredible amount of money, largely on drugs that are either being new drugs or largely developed using public money, or simply they are uh, building off of existing patents that have existed for an incredibly long period of time um, and simply sort of extending those patents. Um, or uh, in some cases, um, you know, simply like, uh, making a lot of money because they're the only company, even if there isn't a patent, who's willing to produce that medication because we don't have a public alternative to do it itself. So yeah, like this money I think is savings. And I think we need to think of it not purely as in the abstract as administrative savings and bulk purchasing savings, but actually it is that question of like, this is a, a question of, of class politics and a question of, in the sense that we are asking to build a system that is going to provide services to all people, particularly the people who need it the most are the working class and the poor. And to do so, we need to go to battle with these incredibly large, uh, wealthy companies who profit off of uh, the misery of other people, if we're being honest. And so I think that that is in a way like a central question of how we ought to do class politics in this country is like, yeah, let's ensure they make less profit and, in, and at the same time, make sure that all of us get the things we need in order to be healthy and ideally thrive. Yes. So I, I live in the wonderful province of Alberta and here in the nineties, we decided to like deregulate is the kind of term of our use, but essentially privatize our electricity utility uh, utilities here in this province. And we essentially sold them off to private actors who then still got, who then got a monopoly to just sell that electricity back to us. So we essentially like let the market take over, you know, how we get electricity in this province. Um, when it comes to like pharmacare and medicine, like how much like capitalism do we allow? How unfettered is the, like the market when it comes to like how the system works? So like the answer is sort of like incredibly unfettered and then, but also the answer is also like entirely reliant on the state. Right. So one of the things I think that's really important is that um, in Canada, like healthcare in Canada is so much about Canadian myth-making and Canadian like hagiography of like specific men. Um, and uh, one of those specific men that we always think about is sort of Jonas Salk and the invention of, uh, of insulin or the discovery of insulin rather. Um, and the, uh, labs will be produced publicly. And one of the things that's always said is like, he was asked once like, well, why aren't you going to patent 
this insulin process. And he said, well, like, that would be like patenting the sun, right? Um, but the thing is, is that for most of human history, what he said was actually unremarkable, right? It's actually really only been really the 20th century. And even then it's been like only the second half of the 20th century where the idea that you could actually patent medications and control medications through intellectual property was considered normal. And that was largely a process that happened in the United States. Um, and I think that that's like that sort of American uh, intellectual property law um, is like has really infected the way that we think about it. And I think that it allows us to forget the fact that the protection that the pharmaceutical industry receives under our laws to allow them to take medic to use medication, which um, and oftentimes they didn't actually like quote unquote invent themselves. And if they did, it was done using government money. The fact that they can prevent other people from producing it, even if it would save their lives, is uh, like not a natural thing. And that actually is a reliance on like a really robust state and a really robust state enforcement uh, system and a system of international treaties. Uh, that I think like it means that it is actually not in any ways, in some ways, like as deregulated as they would like to say it is. Um, and I would say that there's a, a quite good book on this topic by a guy named Alexander Zaitchik. Um, I think it's actually called Patenting the Sun. Um, and, but beyond that, I think that like as a whole, most people access drugs through a pretty privatized system. And I think even with uh, universal pharmacare, we are unfortunately going to have a, to keep a lot of those elements of privatization there. And I think the battle is to try to build a system that allows us to phase those elements out over time, as well as get rid of as many of them as soon as possible. So, for example, pharmacies in this country are almost universally private companies. Um, a universal drug plan would still rely on pharmacies in order to actually dis private pharmacies to actually dispense drugs. Most of them at this point are almost entirely full of a handful of chains. And importantly, and I don't, we can't really get into this, but there's a very small, really only two companies really that actually distribute drugs to those pharmacies that have a, and one of them has almost entirely the monopoly on it. So like that is a very consolidated, very uh, industry that's very profitable. So part of a universal pharmacare plan, part of what we actually have to do is do things like um, on a small level, limit dispensing fees, right? Like we need to set a national standard of like how much can a pharmacy actually charge you to dispense medication to you? Because much of the money that pharmacies actually make and themselves directly is from dispensing fees, not margins on the sale of the pharmaceuticals themselves. Um, so that's mm. one thing we have to do. One thing we have to do as well is create rules about like actual disclosure on the cost of drugs uh, yes. uh, that are charged to plans. We can get into that in a bit. I think that's a, a pretty fascinating story. But also I think like in the long run, what we actually need to do is we need to use this as an opportunity to build a domestic uh, pharmaceutical production capacity in this country, an industry to do to uh, produce generic drugs that is publicly owned right it, we can't just give money to the pharmaceutical industry and say like please build a, a private industry and we're going to subsidize your profits doing so this is an opportunity to create a single buyer for a massive number of medications so uh, you know there's a handful of medications that account for really like about 300 that account for the vast majority of the medication that's actually used uh, in this country, and, and much of it is generic, most of it is generic. And if we can produce most or some of those and begin selling it from a public uh, facilities into a public drug plan, um, then we can bring costs down. We can also rebuild an industry that is an alternative uh, to things like the fossil fuel industry, um, albeit it's not the greenest industry in the world if, compared to things like, um, like education 
or care work. It's not, it's not bad, but it is far greener than the tar sands. And it's something we need. Uh, and also, eventually, we could create the capacity to begin uh, rebuilding a generic uh, drug export industry in this country. Uh, so like it, it also needs to be seen as, again, like it's a political show, but also like it's an economic uh, potential for economic development. And I think that that's a big part of it is um, if we just sit back and just like watch this be whatever it, we want it to be, then we're going to see far more involvement, and far more control from private industry than we would like to see. So there's a lot to, to digest there, but I, the, the thing, the last thing you talked about, the like a publicly owned control and controlled uh, generic manufacturing base, I think is uh, an absolutely fantastic idea, uh, especially for um, the place that I live. I live in Edmonton. I live on Treaty 6 territory. Uh, you know, within Treaty 6, there is a literal clause that's like a medicine chest shall be kept at the house of each Indian agent for the use and benefit of the Indians at the direction of such agent. And this medicine chest clause, you know, it's has been interpreted as like, oh, yeah, like you have to provide health care to everyone. You have to provide medicine to people. Uh, who live on the, on the two indigenous folks who live uh, on the territory. And so like, or onto the treaty land. And so like scaling that up, like it makes incredible amount of sense for this particular area to get into manufacturing generic drugs. We have the industrial space and capacity and engineering know-how. Like if you just drive around the outskirts of Edmonton and you will see, you know, refineries and petrochem projects, as well as the the workforce, the uh, like the construction trades workforce to build those facilities, and honestly, when you're talking about manufacturing things like saline water or aspirin or like, uh, you know, like like you said, there's a list of 300 drugs that are like 80 percent of all of the like pharmaceutical costs in this country. I, I mean, I pull that 80 percent number out of my ass, but 300 drugs that are the vast majority, right? Yeah, that's it's the vast majority, and I also think that when we talk about Pharmacare. The other thing to keep in mind is we're not just talking about drugs in a lot of cases. We're also talking about things um, like medical equipment that's necessary to uh, to dispense those at an individual level. So, for example, insulin pumps. Right. So, what we're actually talking about is um, and diagnostic equipment, like checking uh, blood levels and those or blood sugar levels and those sorts of things. So, what we're actually talking about is like uh, is that industry that also considered as like a starting point to sort of rebuild a high end. Um, like high tech medical plastics, medi- med- medical, yeah, like all medical of, manufacturing, all this sort of yeah. medical stuff, like the very like basic things that we sort of stopped doing when we abandoned the concept of like a developmental state in terms of like economics, and we just sort of like tried to move into some combination of financialization and the service economy and, and exportation of of all manufacturing. We just gave up on the idea of doing any sort of high end, high margin manufacturing. Right? So like even under the confines of capitalism, like there's a better way to do that for the Canadian economy and that like a publicly owned and publicly nurtured industry of building, not just pharmaceuticals, but also uh, like the various other tools that people need to use them that we would hopefully be covered under um, national pharmacare, I think is a really key part of that. Um, And so in places like Saskatchewan and Alberta in particular, that's going to be important as we try to phase out and not even try to, when we inevitably have to phase out the fossil fuel industry, right? Like my, uh, my partner's father uh, works like many Atlantic Canadians, two weeks on, two weeks off in the tar sands. And, you know, he's, he has a, a lot of technical know-how that he's built up over the years of doing that job that I think is reasonably transferable into manufacturing if, if we rebuilt it. And I think that that's one of the things we have to do is like, we do have to be realistic about the idea that like, if we don't want to wait for the collapse before we get rid of 
the tower stands, if we want to try to phase it out earlier before it kills us all, we have to be able to say to people, like, this is your job that's going to may not pay as much, but it's going to be comparable. And building this sort of public pharmaceutical industry, I think, is, is a key part of that. It's not the only one. We're going to have to find a lot of different ways to, to replace the sorts of work that's attached to that, but it certainly is one of them. Yeah, it's not the silver bullet. It's it's not a high margin business. You're not making the fortunes that are currently being made, like in oil and gas, with the price of oil being whatever the fuck it is right now, hundred dollars, hundred bucks. Yeah, and you won't and you won't have the adjacent like oil field suppliers, which are such a huge part of that, particularly politically. But it's an industry, and like we need more. But it of is a real country. job, and it is like stuff that has to be made, and it is absolutely required for us to live in the custom of which we have become, the manner in which we have become accustomed to, uh, to be able to go to the hospital and to be able to get tests and to get medicines. You know, like this is this is like we got to do it. Uh, someone's got to do it, right? And the more people that do it, paradoxically, the the cheaper it gets for everyone. Yeah, especially when the the, the public is. Uh, owning the the means of production here, and it's not there's the profit motive at the heart of all this. Yeah, and I think the other thing to keep in mind too is like I think there are people who are probably listening to us say like, oh, it'll be great if we um, if we like make sure that everyone gets the prescription medications that they need, and they probably listen to it and say like, look, people are over medicated, and like it's bad. Uh, we should figure out natural solutions to these things, and like. <laughs> They're not entirely wrong. Like there's some extent where it's like sometimes those people then talk to you about crystals, but then sometimes there's actually like really legitimate concerns, right? Because we've actually seen the degree to which the pharmaceutical industry is um, is predatory, right? And that has, mm -hmm. in, has in a lot of ways made people's lives much worse, not just in the fact that it you know, exploits people directly through the process of taking their labor in exchange well, for well, this is why the labors. most research this this is why the most research and innovation has come on like, drugs that treat chronic diseases yes right? because it, it takes a long period of time but the other thing is is that like paradoxically a national pharmacare plan will properly designed will reduce the amount of inappropriate prescribing that's done right and that's actually really important right is that like right now uh the like we often we don't have national we don't have a lot of good national data in real time in terms of prescribing trends right so part of what's going to happen with the the hope that's should happen and one of the things we have to fight for to ensure happens is that part of the mandate of uh or now the canadian drug agency which is a new newly formed agency which is going to handle things nationally like the formulary which is the list of drugs that is proposed is that that agency will also be tasked with being independent of industry uh and doing things like tracking prescribing trends right but also doing things like providing independent information to doctors and patients about uh drug use and drug facts, it will determine which drugs are actually uh, included on the formulary and therefore like people can access them through the plan uh, on the basis of whether or not they provide medical benefit, not whether or not they are marketed extremely well. Um, the important thing right now is Health Canada, which approves drugs, um, it is, operates on a partnership model with industry. Um, it's not an oversight body, it's, it's a partnering body. And its approval of drugs are based essentially on the fact of like, is it medically effective? When they ask that, they don't say, is it medically more effective than existing drugs? Just does it improve the condition, right? So if you create a, if you bring them a back or a pain medication that is uh, better than nothing, but worse than things currently in the market, they're still mandated to approve that, right? What we're looking for is a plan that says that like, we don't need more versions of drugs that are mediocre. We need the best drugs available to people. And I think that that's uh, an important part of this is like, if we actually want to reduce things like over prescribing, we need a national body that's tasked with 
tracking it, setting out rules for what's covered, uh, setting out rules for how prescribing happens. And that's what a national drug agency would ideally do. And I think that's, again, part of what we need to fight for is not simply like just buying all the drugs we can from, from the pseudo industry, but actually setting up a system that benefits patients. So Chris, you've sold me, uh, you know, I'm, I'm all in on, you know, free medicine for all pharmacare. Who are our enemies in our, uh, you know, fight or struggle for this? And like, what are they doing to, um, you know, keep this idea down? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the major opponents are going to be uh, private industry, of course. Right. And I think that a minor opponent is going to be um, the some portions of the pharmacy industry or for, like the industry of actual like pharmacies, like the stores, the dispensing pharmacies, right? And that is, I don't, I think it's important that that's not pharmacists, right? Like a lot of pharmacists really, most pharmacists really see themselves as medical professionals who want to help patients. And they are unfortunately stuck in a situation where there are very few pharmacist jobs in public hospitals. And therefore they do most of their work in uh, like private pharmacies. Sometimes they own them as franchises. Sometimes they work for someone else. They're not our enemies, right? The enemies are, uh, a small portion is pharmacies themselves who are going to want to make sure that their uh, dispensing fees aren't touched and are going to want to make sure there's no growth in a competing series of, of public pharmacies, which really we ought to have. I mean, every hospital should have a public pharmacy that you just can walk up to and use uh, a national pharmacare plan in order to get your medication. Every community health clinic should have one a version of that as well. Um, but they're going to fight to make sure that that doesn't happen. But that's relatively minor compared to the two other major groups we're going to see. So the, the first one is the private insurance industry, um, which is you know, the extended healthcare benefit company that you uh, have to file your claims through in that work, right? And again, there's, that's sort of a layered industry. Um, you probably interact on a day-to-day -day basis if you're lucky enough to have drug coverage with Green Shield or, um, or Blue, Cross Blue Cross is the big one. That's it's my own one right now. And, uh, but you know, there's a middle layer, which is the, the brokerages, the extended benefits companies that usually for employers cover sort of like a wide variety of benefits, including um, purchasing and negotiating on their behalf in theory, uh, deals with, um, with these insurance actual companies. And those are companies like uh, Morneau, which previously Morneau Chappelle, um, which is of course uh, the family company of the former finance minister um, who was it's called something else now didn't they like rebrand oh, to they, like well, some 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 anodyne fucking name they've Actually, had just look this up morno chappelle like i uh i had to deal with him previously when i administered a health plan for a uh student union. oh, oh life works yes, okay. uh in 2021 morno yes. chappelle is now is now life works yes. but yes an incredibly evil and massive and profitable company yeah it's bill morno's company and they really have been like their big thing was consolidation just buying up all of the competitors we don't have antitrust laws in this country anymore so like they uh you know they bought they bought up all their competitors and they're a massive like one big brokerage and they handle like all kinds of things right so like they cover healthcare, but they also cover like life insurance um but they also do just like human resources consulting for companies so often like the company that is purchasing on behalf of your um Healthcare on your behalf is also making sure that like your company has a wage suppression strategy, for example. Oh, in, the, um, in the leading in the press release for the rebrand here, it's a leading. They describe themselves as a leading provider of technology-enabled total well-being solutions. Yeah, and 
this is the other thing is like they have been very keen on expanding their coverage of what they offer and trying to offer certain some cases offering services directly in some cases um, partnering with companies like maple or well or other virtual care companies to try to um, introduce sort of coverage of like being able to call a, a doctor uh, to pay and have that paid for privately right so that they're keen on expanding privatization but the important thing with it is that like they get paid for the most part in almost all cases they negotiate as a percentage of um they'll get paid like a four percent management fee on the health plan so if, uh in the premiums so if your premiums go up um they get make more money right which is like the opposite of what they theoretically have a fiduciary duty to do which is negotiate on behalf of the, the members of that plan so they're going to fight it, right? They have already fought it. And what they want to fight for is they want to fill in the gaps plan. They want a plan that's only going to cover those people who are not already covered by uh, a health insurance by a health insurance plan that has uh, pharma coverage, right? Because what they actually want to do is they want the government to take all those people who are really expensive to insure, right? So they want people who have chronic conditions who are going to use tens of thousands of dollars of, on drugs every year, right? They want them out of the plan because those are the things that the people that bankrupt plans, right? Uh, yeah, it's, they, like, it's like the private school model, right? It's like, let the public schools take all the like kids with disabilities yep. or kids who need lots of help and the private schools will just take the cream at the top. Yeah, exactly. Or just, yeah. And just like rich people have better educational outcomes and they have better health outcomes by virtue of being rich. Straight up, right? Like you're not, you are much less likely to get all kind, virtually every disease if you're wealthy enough to to not have to worry about things, right? So they want to take those people who are already employed. They want to take. Uh, they don't want to take uh, retirees to account for a huge, like older folks, account for a huge uh, percentage of our healthcare spending. They don't want to take people with chronic illnesses, uh, and so they're going to fight not against pharmacare itself, but they would actually like a fill in the gaps plan because that takes any pressure off them to cover the people who are most expensive, and they, and most importantly, the people who have the like most chaotic uh, sort of or not chaotic, but like have the most, are most likely to have extremely high drug costs in a, in a single year, right? They're going to like create massive like spikes in a, a plan's coverage, right? Because that also causes people to like choose to simply like remove their plan from or get rid of their plan in some cases, right? So they want to those. And then the other, I think the biggest opponents of this are going to be the, uh, the pharmaceutical um, industry, right? Um, and that is because the current system is set up essentially to allow them to simply print money right um so for example in canada um with the existing drug plans that each province has which again mostly cover things like seniors and low-income people or as well um, cover employees in many cases of uh, the provincial governments the pharmaceutical industry puts in clauses and contracts where they do not allow provinces in most cases to share what they actually pay for a specific medication with other provinces they say that that is, um, they say that that's a proprietary secret. It's a trade secret. And therefore, when <laughs> Nova Scotia is negotiating for the introduction of, uh, say, Tricafta, which is a recently introduced, incredibly expensive, um, but very good uh, cystic fibrosis drug, when Nova Scotia negotiated coverage of that, they couldn't go to another province and say, how much are you paying for this? Are we getting a good deal? Right? Um, they can't do the thing that you do when like, you try to determine which... Uh, wi like home Wi-Fi company you're going to use and you ask your friends like has anyone like what are you paying right provincial governments can't do that so the pharmaceutical industry has like this system set up that 
ensures that on patented drugs that they can make an incredible amount of money with almost no oversight. Um, there is an agency, um, and I think this is important, an important story of the last few years called the PMPRB in Canada, the Canadian um, Patented Medicines Review Price Review Board. And uh, their job is essentially to, to set what limits we do have on the price of patented medications in this country. And they, for the first time in about 30 years, began a process, uh, I believe in 2017, sort of wrapped up in 2019, uh, right before the pandemic, to reevaluate some of the rules of how they set the upper limits on prices of pharmaceutical drugs in this country. And the sort of- so, so just to jump in here, like this, this, this public body, this, this obscure public body that's responsible for uh, setting the prices of drugs, the high end of prices of drugs is like, it's like to stop like the Martin Shkreli's of the world from just buying up patents and then just jacking up the price by 3000%. Yeah. It just right? it sets a ceiling on it. It just says, this is the most you can charge. And it essentially does it by, with a list of compare, a small list of comparator countries, right? that are like, basically like, here are some countries that are similar to Canada. We use a sort of convoluted formula to figure out like using the prices of these drugs in this in those countries where possible, what you can charge for this drug here. And the big changes they tried to introduce were um, allowing provinces to share information on what they're paying for drugs. And then the other one, uh, there was a number, a whole bunch of other smaller changes, but the really big one was this change that they proposed to what the comparator countries were. So a big example of this is they wanted to take out Switzerland, which is a very small company with very high uh, drug prices that demographically looks nothing like Canada, um, other, than, other than the fact that it is white, although Canada isn't nearly as white as Switzerland at this point. Um, and the pharmaceutical industry lost their minds, right? And they essentially saw this rightfully as the first step in an attempt to, uh, to regulate them in, in any significant way, and also an important first step in setting the stage for pharmacare. So they went to war with the PMPRB and essentially decided, uh, along with um, the help of both a number of conservative MPs, but also the Fraser Institute and other uh, think tanks to just, they're gonna destroy the PMPRB. They're gonna say like this body uh, needs to not simply not make these changes, but they need to be just destroyed so that other agencies realize that we will like do everything we can to just make sure you no longer exist if you challenge our power. And uh, they did so um, with the help of, and I'm gonna try to word this as delicately as possible, um, patient groups, in Canada who received the majority or in some cases virtually all of their funding from the pharmaceutical industry directly. Um, and that is not all patient groups in this country, but is many of the most vocal. Um, and they sided with the pharmaceutical industry because the pharmaceutical industry said that, look, we already have developed these drugs. They're available in other countries. Chris, Chris I got to jump in here. It really does sound like we need a public inquiry to get to the bottom of the foreign funding of these, these patients groups. I'm in Nova Scotia, where we've got a Porta Peak inquiry right now. So I'm not in like the, the public inquiry mode of believing that we're going to get to the truth of anything with that. Um, but that is a different podcast and no longer the type of podcast I do, particularly when I'm on the clock with work. Um, but they like essentially, yeah, like they, I mean, that is what they did, right? Like it is, these are multinational corporations who fund advocacy groups in Canada. And those advocacy groups happened to support their uh, attempts to ensure that these companies can charge whatever they want for medication, right? Because the company said, look, if we can't charge literally any, whatever amount of money we want for medications, we have these medications, but we will make sure they are not available in your country and people who need them to live will die or they will suffer and live much worse lives. Yeah, gun like, to the head of a puppy kind yes, of stuff. Yes, right? I like to think that if I were in that situation and like a multinational corporation told me that like, I'm willing to let you die unless you help us, um, convince your government to let us like soak them for whatever money they're worth that I would rather than calling for 
uh, an elimination of the body which tries to regulate drug prices in the country, I would instead be calling for like the imprisonment or worse of the CEOs and shareholders of those companies, right? But I'm also not in that situation. So like, I understand the death, I, I don't understand because I haven't been there, but I am incredibly um, like sympathetic uh, to the plight of people that say like, I don't care what happens. I need this medication for me or my loved one to survive. And I think the fact that the pharmaceutical industry is willing to manipulate those people in order to, in the name of profit, is a sign of how vicious that industry is, how without any sort of like moral authority or morality at all it is, but also how dangerous of an opponent it's gonna be when it comes to the question of pharmacare. If they're willing to do that, in order to get what is like a very bureaucratic, reasonably small change to how drug pricing is set, imagine what they're going to do with the things that we've talked about, which is an attempt to build a national pharmacare plan that does things like uh, limits over prescribing, that limits uh, the ability to use marketing um, to, uh, to push drugs that are not more effective, and which is also talking about ideally introducing the public production of pharmaceuticals, um, of generic pharmaceuticals. Imagine what they're going to do to pharmacare. And that's, I think, the battle that we're about to face, right? Is we, we can't think that if we get an act in 2023 uh, and the government somehow survives until 2025 and we get this formulary, that we suddenly have pharmacare. That's not how the plan is built, but also that there are years, at least three years, likely more of an ongoing battle where the pharmaceutical industries can do everything in their power to destroy this program. So if we want it, it's not good enough to just like think that like, this deal gets it. Like that's not how power works. That's a very naive view and an unserious view of how politics work. And I think that we need to, when we talk about the politics of this, the conversation is not the machinations of a handful of backroom people in Ottawa and the Liberal and NDP parties. The politics of this are how the fuck are the working people of this country and the poor people of this country and the marginalized people of this country going to build the power necessary to go to war with the multinational pharmaceutical industry and a incredibly domestically powerful and politically well-placed insurance industry to ensure that we get a plan that we should have had decades ago. And so that's the fight. Like that's politics to me. Everything else is fucking fantasy sports. Yeah, the stakes here are incredibly high, right? We're talking about medicine and drugs that will literally save people's lives, that will Im drastically improve the quality of life of, of regular ass people. And the the reason why I ask, like, who are the bad guys? Who are the enemies that we have to defeat here? Is like, this is a class struggle, right? This is this is a, literally a struggle that the that gets to the core of like what how evil capitalism is and what must be do done to defeat it. And like the stakes are high, not only in the case of like people will die and people need medicine, this medicine in order to live or to live anyway, halfway comfortable lives. But the bonus of all this is that if we do win, we get to crush the pharmaceutical industry. Like simply put one of the most evil agglomerations of people in capital to like ever exist. And uh, that is a huge fucking bonus too. Yeah, exactly. I think that for a lot of, the left in this country, we don't fight capital directly that often anymore, right? Um, I think that often our target is, unfortunately, sometimes cultural, but often is simply like arms of the state. So it's an indirect fight against big corporations, right? I think uh, indigenous uh, struggles, I think indigenous struggles around um, self-determination and control of, of land and resources and uh, existence are an exception to that. I think that uh, at 
times, largely the, uh, the best parts of the climate justice movement are an exception to that. But I think that, you know, particularly I think on the socialist left, we've been scared of taking on the pharmaceutical industry. And the pharmaceutical industry like won on an unprecedented level over the last two years. One of the reasons they've been able to bully government about the PMPRB and delay implementation of these rules and cause second guessing is because they made the implicit threat that if you don't, um, if you don't comply with this, it's going to make it really hard for us to get uh, vaccines to you in a timely manner, right? They did, it's a classic shakedown. They essentially did the like, oh, that's a like, real nice story you got here. Shame if something were to happen to it, right? They pulled that move. Um, and like, that's like an industry that has consolidated its power, that is incredibly powerful globally, that we need to take on. And I think like, we should, on the left, like, welcome the opportunity. Like This is a thing that is an incredibly popular program. It's a program that fits into a national narrative about this thing that many Canadians are often with very little thought very proud of, which is universal pharmacare. It's a program which uh, would help everyone. It's a program which makes good policy sense on a nuts and bolts level of saving money and reducing expenditures. And it allows us also to, uh, to take on a big private industry in what is a battle between you know the people and corporations and see if if we've got what it takes because like if we we need to be able to do that to build a better world and this is not going to build that better world on our own but it's like it's a fight which is part of that process and it's a fight which allows us to like learn how to do that again um and i think that we we need to do that and i think that um it, it needs to be a fight that happens on like a number of different fronts and it, it really has to come from the bottom up this isn't something that's going to be sort of given to us uh, by decree from uh, from Jagmeet Singh and Justin Trudeau or you know, Prime Minister <laughs> Christia Freeland in a few years or whoever it's oh, going to be, right? You shut up. Well, that is a, a, a coherent thought, I think, to end it on. When you fight, you win. And this is a fight worth taking on. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for coming on the pod. Uh, how can people get involved in this struggle? Uh, and, uh, you know, where would you direct people to, to direct their energies as also as well as to follow along with the work that you're doing? Yeah, I would say like the uh, a couple different things. Like if you want to follow us, um, like I'm personally on Twitter at, at Culture of Defeat. Uh, our organization is on Facebook, note the Nova Scotia Health Coalition or underscore NSHC on Twitter, although that's not updated super frequently, you can check our website. But I would suggest on like the local level, like most provinces have a provincial and territorial health coalition. Um, so like, you know, the Manitoba Health Coalition, Saskatchewan Health Coalition, the BC Health Coalition, um, the Friends of Medicare, the Ontario Health Coalition. There, there's all of these local groups provincially who I think could use, we all could use an injection of energy. We're all exhausted coming out of the pandemic. I would get in touch with them and see like what you can do to help see what uh, campaigns they're involved in. I would also say like I, I think that this is a struggle where the labor movement um, has has been pushing on it, and I think they've done, it should be commended in many cases of doing a very good job on it. But it, that struggle needs to be renewed, and it needs to become a struggle that's happening from the rank and file, not simply kind of happening out of research and policy offices, and not happening sort of leadership. And I think that getting involved in local un your local union encouraging them to back the campaign, but also encouraging them to find ways that members can be mobilized and involved in it, I think is another really good way to do it. And I would also just beg people to um, not fall into the trap of just, uh, I've seen a lot of really well-meaning people being like, oh, we're going to have Pharmacare by 2023. Like, thank you, Jagmeet Singh. Um, don't do that. Like, that's my last piece of advice is just like, we don't have shit yet, right? We have the first step in fighting towards it and pretending that we have it um, because the political party you back uh, is part of the process of, of writing some legislation which will help do that, um, is counterproductive. It's not just not helpful. It actually undermines what we actually need to do, 
which is articulate the need for a struggle and then engage in that struggle. And so uh, get involved in the groups that are struggling and like do not um, just get out of the way if you're not willing to do that, I guess it would be my point. So uh, I would really urge folks to do that for sure. There you go. Thanks so much for coming on, Chris. Uh, folks, if you have any notes, thoughts, comments, things you think I screwed up on, I am very easy to get a hold of. You can reach me on Twitter at, at Duncan Kinney. You can reach me by email at duncank at progressalberta.ca. Uh, also, if you like this show, please support it. Become a monthly donor. There is a link in the show notes. Also, uh, quick thanks to Jim Story for editing this podcast. As always, thank you to Cosmic Famu Communist for our theme. Thank you for listening, and goodbye.